Hey, Chris here with a couple of quick announcements up front. Um, one, our two-year anniversary show is coming up at the end of the month. June 29th, I think, is when it'll be released. But don't quote me on that. The recoveryrevolution.online slash upcoming uh, will let you know for sure. Um, we're not sure exactly what we're going to do. Three of the ideas are, one, do a listener call-in sort of clip show. So please keep calling the 507-556-7271 number. Um, if we don't do that clip show, we'll definitely use your calls um, if you allow us to. Um, just make sure to say you don't want us to if you don't when you call in. Um, two, we're thinking maybe do a live call-in show uh, via Google Hangouts, which we've tried once before, to disastrous effect, but we may have figured it out, we being me. Um, and three was uh, a live in front of an audience show. But, you know, St. Louis, despite being our home, isn't um, one of our largest markets. I mean, New York, L.A., uh, London, Portland um, are all have all, all have bigger listenerships. And two, I just also wanted to give a shout out to Kate, who took us on a driving safari through Kruger National Park, and we just really appreciate you seeing fit to take us along for the ride. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. The Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. Welcome to the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Podcast, the podcast of clean and sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R. And SinceRightNow.com with your hosts in recovery, Jeff, Matt, and Chris. What? What? Helena? Hello. Hello. I'm back with Jeff. Hi, Helena. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm and, excited. And Matt. Hi. Hi, Matt. Um, okay, so we're ready to go. And I, I, in the pre-call, I forgot to mention this. I, if you if you listened to last week's episode, and I won't mind if you didn't, because what you would have heard was Jeff saying, "Who do we have on next week?" Yeah. And me saying, uh, "I don't know." And Jeff going, "It doesn't matter." Well, you know, of course it matters. Yeah. It's not the, if you did hear that. <laughs> it's no reflection on you. No, I said, of course it matters. And then I'm scrambling to remember. It's no reflection on you. Uh, that is just, okay. Uh, I totally appreciate it. And <laughs> one, thing I've, one thing I've learned here very quickly in recovery is not to take things personally. Exactly. So, But I totally appreciate the, the heads up. It's and uh, you all matter to me too. Well, so don't you. worry. Uh, it, it, it's, a ref- it's a reflection on me. I put something in a calendar like usually on my iPhone. Um, and, and until it pops up a reminder that I'm going to forget what's happening. So, um, and Jeff's just an asshole. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So that's the problem. Really what it's about is, is calling Jeff an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so good to know. I'll right. try to fit that in as often as I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you got some background on the show and, and, uh, I'm going to, uh, briefly introduce you and then let you, yeah. um, you know, We'll, we'll, we'll get to, to the story um, because I, I do think you have a fascinating story. So, um, Helena, and are we using your last name? Of course we are. You sure. Yeah. Hovitz. <laughs> yes, of course Hovitz. we are. You and wrote do a book. You, do you, okay. I'm gonna, and I'm going to tell a quick story too. In the pre-call, I asked Helena to pronounce her name 
and I only asked her to pronounce her first name. I neglected to ask her to pronounce her last name. Right. And so I'm doing exactly what I told her. I thought I learned not to do, <laughs> which is go in blind on pronouncing people's Uh-oh. names. So Helena Hovitz, um, yeah. who has a book out, coming out. September 6th. September 6th. Um, after 9-11, um, that, uh, and you're going to fill us in on this, um, sort of traces the origins of both uh, a PTSD and alcoholism that began at 9-11, in yes. a sense, right? Um, yeah. So, welcome, Helena. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Let's, Thank uh, you. Can, can we can we maybe well actually where where is the place to start where do you, where should we start um, yeah I, I we'll work our way up to now and sure. back and forth in between okay sure cool. sure so um, yeah I think that's a great place to start um, you know I will say that you know I think nine eleven is such a loaded word and such sure. a loaded topic and everyone who was alive then and is still alive now has an experience with it, you know, wherever they were. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very personal subject. It's a very loaded subject. And, you know, so I want to say that, you know, my story, which I wrote a book about, you know, my trauma happened to be this national global trauma that impacted some people in much more serious ways where, you know, they lost a loved one, they lost lives. Um, and then there are people who, um, were, you know, in other countries or in other States who, who still were so severely impacted by it that they, you know, their lives changed from wherever they were. Um, because it was not only in New York, it was in, you know, Washington, it was in Pennsylvania, it was, you know, intense. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, it was, it was pretty surreal having lived through that, you know, I mean, uh, surviving it directly, I guess I'll start at the, I'll try to give you the abridged version. Um, it's, it is a pretty long story. I'll give you the short version. Basically, um, I was 12 years old, I was in school, across the street from the World Trade Center um, in the morning. And uh, we were in class when the first plane hit. We were taken to the cafeteria. About five minutes before the bomb squad came in to evacuate the school, um, I saw my neighbor and her son, you know, appear in the school's entryway. And I knew that my parents weren't going to be among the parents who were coming in crying and screaming because my mom worked uptown, my dad worked in Staten Island, and I just instinctively ran up to to my neighbor and she said to the principal, you know, I can take her. I walk to school every day. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at that moment, you know, the rest of the school was getting evacuated and going up the West Side Highway to safety. And, you know, the three of us, Anne and Charles and myself, uh, our objective was just to get home, Mm -hmm. which uh, if you know the geography of Lower Manhattan, you know, uh, the the closer you get to the tip of the island, the more narrow it becomes. And river to river, I mean, is basically home. It was home in school for me. And it was normally a 10 minute walk, a 10, 15 minute walk. Mm -hmm. We were like three, four blocks from the World Trade Center on the east side. The school was like a block away on the west side. So we thought, you know, by now both planes had hit. Um, we weren't even sure if they were planes. There was so much chaos going on. But our thought was, we're just going to go home. We're just going to get home. We're going to go through City Hall. It's going to be a straight shoot. My grandparents also lived in the building at the time. And I, we all, that was what we thought. Of course, we're going to go home. That's safe. And what ended up happening was, uh, 
we basically spent an hour trying to get home um, because the cops kept stopping every entryway, you know, into where we lived because they were sending everyone uptown. That's what they were directed to yeah. do. And we just kept trying to get downtown. Um, so not to get too graphic in the details, but, you know, we were running from the first collapse. We mm. saw, you know, things that I think mm. over the past 15 years, everyone has probably seen some semblance of on the news, you know, the footage of people covered in ash and, and some things that people probably can't imagine, like mm. what it's like to see people jumping and, and landing when you're 12 years old. Mm. And, oh um, God. you know, we, uh, and, and, and there was worse than that, but, you mm. know, I don't want to, sure. again, I don't want to be too gory, but, um, you know, so we finally made it home um and i i ran upstairs that now the power was already out uh in our building and um you know the lobby was filled with filled with people covered in ash and so i ran up the stairs to my grandma's apartment and you know she screamed into the phone like she's alive she's alive to you know my my mother and father yeah. thought i was dead because oh. when you, know, you saw that collapse on tv you know they didn't know what was happening no one was picking up the phones at school so um you know and when i looked at the tv i finally understood what we'd been running from and what had been happening and uh outside the window behind the tv was black because it was the smoke it was just black um and you know um that that night it was basically like living in an abandoned war zone because the police had told everyone that we'd been evacuated but our residential housing complex had not and so we were here the towers were still on fire the debris was still in our apartments and in the air and uh we had no water or elevators or phones or anything and um there was no one around to help us because the cops were telling everyone that everyone was in holding shelters and you know there are, there were easily over a thousand people that were here that were elderly or in wheelchairs. I mean, we were basically just kind of forgotten down here. And uh, the two weeks that followed, you know, the neighborhood became a war zone. It was on lockdown. There were threats of, you know, more bombs on landmarks. There was people running. There was pack a bag. This building's going to fall. It was just awful. It was a nightmare. And, and you know, it, it was, it became even more surreal when, you know, my aunt, called from uptown and you know by then Verizon came in and gave us some cell phones that worked and she said up here it's like normal like the city's back to normal and mm -hmm. you know Giuliani was on TV saying we have to get back to normal and we're not going to be defeated and it was like well yeah unless you lived below Canal Street and then there was no normal anymore ever again I mean that was it and you know so so basically you know my story chronicles what it was like to you know get to the relocated school which was not in a very stable environment all of us were like having these varied responses mm -hmm. to what had happened um on top of it we were getting bullied i mean it was really okay. rough and um it was rough it was rough you know it was a whole other world downtown and the kids in the school that we went to you know i think they thought that we thought we were special because we were from downtown and it was quite the opposite i mean you know you had parents coming to get kids wearing gas masks and people making fun of them and and you just had a bunch of nervous kids who were like jumping and crying I, it was I mean I'll speak for myself you know there's the immediate symptoms of trauma that you see which is anxiety mm -hmm. and nightmares and flashbacks and jumping and crying but what 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 happens is that becomes more complex over time if it's not treated. And so as I became a teenager and these it became more complex, the, the not trusting people, not trusting the world around me, the uh, hyper reactivity, the hyper vigilance, the emotional reactivity, the kind of feeling of a loss of control, which then eventually developed into, you know, it went from so, like sporadic drinking like teenagers do to like social binge drinking and then eventually 
you know, um, around the same time that I finally found the right kind of therapy. Um, I had spent my teenage years going to at least eight or nine different psychiatrists and therapists who were slapping different diagnoses and different medications on me, ADD, bipolar, all this stuff, which were all incorrect. Um, but the time I was, uh, 18, you know, I was ready to be done because my life was like a living hell and everything I was trying to fix me wasn't working. And I finally went into uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what they give, you know, veterans and is becoming more common for the general treatment of PTSD. But at the time, it's almost interesting the way it worked out that around the time I started going into CBT was also when my drinking became worse. And of course, this is only something I know in hindsight, but, um, you know, I had started that recovery, but meanwhile, you know, I started to not be able to stop once I started drinking and, uh, you know, it wasn't until about three years into CBT and then DBT therapy that, you know, my therapist first dropped the mention of, you know, you don't have these episodes of, of, you know, severe reactivity when you're panic when you're sober. And I kind of, you know, wasn't ready to hear it. And uh, eventually, when I was 22, I had made a ton of progress, but I kept kind of running around in front of the finish line because, you know, I couldn't make this full recovery until I got sober. Um, and uh, that was four and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, so really the book and the journey is about, you know, what is, what does recovery look like? You know, what, what does it look like to live in the aftermath of something, not just immediately, because I think whether it's in, you know, fictional cinema or real life news coverage, like we never see what actually happens to the people who survive and go on living after these horribly traumatic events. And so this is a, this is a look at, you know, 14 years right. after what it looks like, you know, right. trying to find a new beginning, trying to reconstruct a life. And so, um, you know, that's the, uh, that is the short version. It's not a short book, but I heard it moves fast. So yeah, well, no, I imagine if, if, yeah. Um, it, yeah. If you can, if you tell it like that, I mean, I, I think yeah. it's likely a very compelling read. Um, no. So, you know, what's, Fascinating is, you know, a lot of our our addictions, um, you know, carry with them that co-occurring disorder. A lot of them begin or, or are, are the catalyst is trauma, right? Um, and there are degrees of trauma, certainly, but, you know, for an individual, mm -hmm. trauma is trauma, right? Yeah. But, you know, you have this iconic sort of world-changing trauma at the core of, of yours, um, which, uh, you know, it's just, it's staggering. And, you know, the, the one question, sorry, I, uh, um, when you, when you said you, you changed schools, uh, I'm going to be all over the place for a minute, but I wanted to get this out before I forgot. And you talked about the PTSD not being identified. Did you not, were there not therapists early on? Were there not like, I feel like therapists should have been with you at the school that you, that you moved to. Yeah, this is, uh, I've gotten this question a lot. Um, so essentially, um, we, if, if you read a couple of the articles that were written at the time, we have, you know, supposedly there was help sent to our school. I interviewed 16 kids uh, at the 10-year anniversary, and no one remembers any 
therapists or social mm-hmm. workers being sent into the school. There was one girl who remembered a guidance counselor being there. Um, and she remembers the guidance counselor saying to her, when you guys go back to your school in Battery Park, I'm not going because I can't handle it. Yeah. Um, and so that should give you some idea of what we were uh, what we were dealing with. Now, uh, a few months after 9-11, um, my mother took it upon herself to seek out therapy for me because I was just having, it was, it was bad. I was just not doing well. And, you know, at the time you have to keep in mind, this is, you know, 2001, the internet wasn't what it was. Mental health awareness wasn't what it was. And so she just called the Red Cross and said, what should I do for my daughter? And, and they referred me to an inpatient program, um, at what used to be St. Vincent's hospital, uh, down here in the village. And I got 12 weeks of therapy. And, um, you know, the therapist did mention, I think, PTSD once. And I know that because I had it written in my writer's notebook at the time that I still have, uh, like 15 years later. And, uh, but that's, that was the only time it was brought up. And then at the end of 12 weeks, it was just like, okay. And since that was what the Red Cross covered and the therapist was like, all right, you're done. I just kind of figured, all right, I'm done. I'm 12. And my mom's, you know, like we figured that's it. And that was the last time I heard PTSD for six years. Isn't it? It seems weird. Like it seems like that would be an obvious thing to check out, you know, Yeah. in in this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And maybe not then. I mean, maybe it wasn't even a thing in 2001. And and as you noted, you know, trauma is trauma to some degree, but for someone at that age, 12 years old, an event that just points out how tenuous, everything is there are no constants mm. i mean all these things that you come to rely on yeah. I mean, it wasn't personal it was the whole infrastructure of yeah. right. the country yeah fell down around down. you yeah. i mean how yeah. it must have been very hard to trust um yeah. and just to have faith yeah yeah well, yeah the, the other thing is it's strange because at some point you're going to try alcohol when you're 13 teenagers 14 Regardless, so i wonder right. if, if you realize now looking back if the second you tried alcohol if it suddenly numbed something or if it you know what I'm saying like it just became this thing that you could gravitate towards yeah so the first thing I want to say really quickly is you know yeah you would think PTSD uh, would be obvious when I talked to those 16 kids who all uh, I, I read them a checklist of PTSD symptoms and they said yes to almost every single one and virtually none of them had ever seen a therapist None of them had ever heard PTSD, and yet they were living these lives that were just damaged. It's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable that you would think it's obvious, but it's not as obvious as we think. Even today, it goes to show you some of them. I mean, a few of them, thank God, I've been able to point towards, you know, some resources. They're reaching out to me 15 years later, like, do you you think I have PTSD? Yeah, yeah. And imagine 15 years. I mean, I was ready to end it after six, you know, and I mean... It's, it's crazy, but so yes, I will say, you know, the first, the, my first drink, um, was, uh, Bacardi 151 and I was, uh, yeah, man. And, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) No, good for the two boys that we were with actually at the time. Good for them. Um, it was Bacardi 151. I was 14 about to turn 15 and, uh, you know, I, I had this moment where I was like a good kid like I was a good kid I was an only child in a very small but loving family like I got good grades I was a good kid like maybe I was a little bit of a pain in the ass but I wasn't (laughs) a bad kid and so I knew right from wrong and I knew I shouldn't be drinking on a pier at night 
with two older boys and my friend, you know, and I knew that, but I was so by then um, tortured by what was happening with me and feeling so othered by, you know, alienated from other kids in ninth grade and just from the world. And, and, you know, the therapy wasn't working. I was going in, I was talking, he would like grumble. And then I leave, you know, it was, nothing was changing. And I was like, all right, maybe, you know, maybe this will make me feel better Mm -hmm. because people seem to have a grand old time when they're drinking, you know? So that was definitely the thought behind the first time I drank. And, uh, you know, of course, I did not know um, <laughs> how strong 151 was. So when they kept pouring me these little shots and I kept throwing them back and, and not coughing and being, you know, a big shot. And they were like, whoa, of course, like it was like a badge of honor. You know, I was like, yeah. And, uh, you know, so. um so yeah, I, I mean, that night there was a first for me. Fortunately, it wasn't the big first, but there was a first. And, uh, you know, and the next day I had what I didn't realize, you know, was a hangover. Yeah. And, um, first little hangover. And, oh my gosh. I mean, it was like my head hurt and I was mm. kind of nauseous, but I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. I just, it was like a feeling I didn't understand. Mm. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't drink again really for um I would say like two, another two years um after that I, I smoked a little weed and that was fun too um and uh you know it was it was silly and it was goofy and and in those early days it certainly did not do for me what it ended up doing towards the end which was the complete opposite uh of what I wanted you know I I and I think that's the nature of, of what happens when you become addicted to something. It's like I, I was smoking weed all the time and expecting it to make me feel relaxed and calm and happy and goofy. And it was actually making me very, very paranoid yeah. and, yeah. you know, and ner- even more nervous than I was. And, you know, so, yeah. I've been there with that. Yeah. That's yeah. I don't know why it came up. Somebody was talking yeah. about weed. And I re- remember specifically the night I decided to stop smoking weed. When it's all, the, it's exactly that. Yeah. Because I was just paranoid and freaked out. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Anxious and sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This yeah. isn't working anymore. Um, yeah. So, and it's, yeah. I mean, I remember, I, I remember going to the movies, like on the Upper East Side and like going in high and like spraying perfume on. And now, like, and now people pass me on the street smelling like cologne and weed. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I thought I was getting away with that too, but you just <laughs> smell like cologne covered weed. And I would go to the movie theater and like think people were undercover cops who were going to like bust us because we were high. And it was just like not. It was not. Everybody fun knows. Everybody right, knows. Right. I'm going to feel like this forever. Yeah. So, so tell me when, during, during this thing right now, when did you get diagnosed correctly and what, what's the treatment for, you had to take care of the PTSD and the alcoholism, right? And, or did you just get sober and all of a sudden the PTSD went away? No, not at all. I, uh, when I was 18, um, my psychologist uh, mentioned that I should try CBT therapy. Yes. Um, now she had mentioned it a couple of times without telling so me. CBT, we've heard we've heard this before. Essentially, yeah. what is it? Like it's a is it a yeah? Because it's kind of a, a new thing, or it's sure uh, right. It's getting so, more and more popular. usage. And and the one smart recovery thing we went to is based on CBT. Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. Right? right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, cognitive behavioral nice. therapy. And what um, what it is is, you know, goal-oriented therapy that takes a really practical, skill-based approach mm-hmm. to changing patterns of thinking, mm-hmm. behavior, the way they feel, 
their interpersonal relationships. Essentially, when you go through trauma, and this happens when you're an adult too, but especially as a child, your brain gets rewired because you've got yeah. the, you know, this chemical imbalance, this adrenaline, this muscle, this automatic response, muscle memory. It's nuts. Everything, your neurotransmitters, everything gets rewired. And your brain, you're just constantly living life through this lens of fear and panic and something's wrong and fight or flight. Everything gets rewired. Cognitive behavioral therapy for me, um, you know, this was the first time I sat across from a therapist who had me actually going home with homework and like charting my feelings, what they were in relation to, looking back on them, reflecting on them to say, you know, it might have felt like a 10, like the end of the world and I was, my feelings were going to kill me then. But now I look back on it and I think, oh, that's so silly just a few days later and just checking, you know, fact and reality, looking at how I was, you know, um, communicating how I was feeling to people and, you know, just the, the thought patterns, just the everyday, you know, like taking the subway, right. was horrifying for me. Every time the train stopped, I thought something was going on. I would have a panic attack. I was taking Klonopin to stop the panic attack and I had to go on the subway twice a day for college, you know, and, and this was an everyday thing that was re-traumatizing for me. So she had to, we, she taught me actual techniques, things I could do when I started to have that panic attack in the subway. So it was really, um, you know, it's how do I actually change the behavior, the, the, the thoughts that, you know, how do I start to actually recover and do differently and think differently? And it's hard. It's yeah, really hard. She was the yeah. first therapist to like check me too. Like I remember one time I called her, um, and I was so panicked that like, I just kept calling and calling. And then I left her a voicemail that must've sounded really nasty. Cause I was like pissed off at her for not picking up the phone. <laughs> yeah. And she didn't call me back. And when I went to see her, she was like, you think I'm going to answer a message like that? And I was like, my mind was blown because now on top of like the pat, like the heart, I was feeling hurt. I was feeling rejected mm. and criticized. And she's like, you have to understand that you need to still be skillful and communicate in a way that's not going to push other people away when you're suffering, when you need help, you right. have to be able to ask for help in a way that makes people want to help you, right. you so know, you because kind of called you on your shit first. Yeah. Call you on it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that was where it started. And then, you know, she and I made a lot of progress at the same time that I started seeing her. I was uh, 18 with a fake ID that swiped and scanned going up in the clubs in West Chelsea, which is like Manhattan's hottest, you know, clubs mm -hmm. going with these like <laughs> high end promoters, five, $10,000 tables. We're so special. You get to do this because you're a quote unquote hot chick, like, you know, yeah. living the dream with these celebrities and stuff. And, you know, it was like the first time that I felt like I was part of you know what I mean like I had spent mm -hmm. so much time like losing friends cutting friends off because I had these paranoid delusions they were you know trying to hurt me this was the first time I felt like I was worth something mm -hmm. because you know what at age 12 that's when you're supposed to start figuring out who you are mm -hmm. in the world around you and <laughs> I didn't really get a chance to do that because I was so busy every day thinking how am I going to survive mm -hmm. you know and I was just the identity of whatever guy I was with at the time mm -hmm. that was my identity you know I mean there's a picture uh, I have one picture left and, and no one will ever see it of me at 17 with like a fitted cap and braids and hoop earrings and Nike sneakers <laughs> and like an Echo t-shirt that was too <laughs> <laughs> and like a Newport cigarette hanging out of my yeah, mouth. You gotta I send that to us so we can post oh, it. Absolutely not. <laughs> Come um, on. I think I drew you a good picture. And it was literally just, you know, <laughs> um, 
that was it. Like I was just whoever I was standing next to, you know, and, and who I was standing next to was someone I felt was tough and could protect me and had their own shit who actually understood me. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, it was that, that was going on while I started to recover. And wow. so, so, so um, you took care of the yeah. PTSD first yeah. and then just as you're drinking was at its height and fun and going to all these clubs, right? Or mm-hmm. you, you kind of get yeah. into this CBT first. And then, so when did, yeah, when did she suggest, hey, maybe the we should dancing, take a look at that. Dancing around the finish line, as you put it, you know, yeah, like yeah. We, yeah. Can, we can take Literally. care of a lot of stuff, but right. we can't really take care mm-hmm. of yeah. everything. So, we, so yeah. she mentioned it, um, this, this therapist who is fantastic, actually, uh, her yeah, name is Dr. Sounds Ar- great. Dr. Ariel Goldklang, and, and I'm giving her a shout out because Do she it. was, really unbelievable and uh she you know said to me a couple times she's like you know do you realize that you're creating your own crisis now because you're getting drunk you're going home with strangers and you're feeling sick and like shit about yourself the next day because you're making these really bad decisions and I was like this is all I have what do you want me to do if I don't (laughs) drink I'm just a homework machine because in college I was still you know a super student and Mm -hmm. I had an internship and on the outside I held it together but I said to her I'm like you want me to not have the one thing that's fun in my life I already have barely anything except for this you know I was like empty basically and so she didn't push it you know she didn't push it because as we all know you have to, you know, you have to get them on your own. And, uh, so then she left on maternity leave and I got referred to a DBT therapist, quick education. DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy, um, which builds on, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but it focuses, um, basically, you know, to put it simply, it incorporates a lot of mindfulness skills, um, and like acceptance and um you know it's it's uh you know it's been used to treat a number of things but you know it's the continuation of you know skills learning skills learning distress tolerance how to tolerate difficult situations that you can't change interpersonal effectiveness how to ask for what you want and say no while maintaining your relationships emotional regulation you know, how to tolerate your own emotions, how to change emotions that you want to change. Um, so I did that and I saw her for two years and uh, my drinking, as I continued to make progress recovering from PTSD, my drinking got worse. And, um, you know, the concept, now I'll say this, I never got to the point where I was arrested or committed a crime or crashed a car. Like I, you know, in the rooms you hear all these, these mm-hmm. crazy stories. And, and, you know, basically I just like, uh, I went out and maybe I went on a date or I went out to a club and you know what, sometimes I could have one drink and sometimes I could have two drinks. I didn't wake up every day drinking. I could go a week or two without drinking, but the time always came where I couldn't stop even Mm -hmm. when I wanted to. And then I didn't just get hung over. I got, you know, I was trembling and and throwing up and shaking and had a migraine for like 10 hours the next day and you know um or and I I in a when I was drunk I you know hit my boyfriend or I lost my phone or I had to go to the hospital for alcohol poisoning Mm -hmm. and it was just you know these personal consequences and it was just 
No, I, so I tried all the old tricks, right? Like I tried switching from, you know, hard liquor to wine. And then I tried switching from wine to like one drink. And then I did the marijuana maintenance, you know, where I would smoke <laughs> weed a little bit. And, and you know, but, but the time always came where I slept up. And, uh, you know, at the time, you know, doing, you know, the 12-step program thing, I didn't even know what that was. I had no clue what that was. I just thought I have to control it. Um, you know, and so, uh, there were a couple times that, you know, this therapist said to me, you know, you realize that you're making all this progress, but then when you have these massive freakouts, I mean, there was, there was a time where I called her and all she heard was my screaming on the other end and she couldn't tell if I had called so she could hear the screaming or if I had called her by accident or I just wanted her to know that I was like losing it. Wow, but I mean, wow. often, yeah, it well, was intense. Was it? Yeah. What, yeah. Oh, I don't even remember. That's, I don't even remember. An, you know, I couldn't even yeah. tell you. It was intense. It that was really intense. intense. But at the same time, I was sh- I was showing up for class every day. I was mm-hmm. like participated the most. I was the most put together. Kids were showing up in sweatpants, and I had like this carefully planned outfit and my makeup done, and I had a byline at a local newspaper, and I always had an internship, and I graduated with a three point eight. So on the outside, <laughs> you would have never thought really that this rocking. was going yeah. on. Yeah, um, and so eventually, you know. Um, I just had it in my head, like, I've got to control it. I can't control it. I've got to stop. But maybe, and as we know, you can't do it alone. And anyone who claims they can do it alone, I'm like, you must be have some magic wand that someone tapped you with. Because my whole thing was, you know, I, I needed the social support. I needed the program. Like, that's what I needed. Because even at 22, you know, I, I just had a really good, like, three, four-year run. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it on my own. And I tried. So. so what was your first, yeah, what was your first meeting? How did you get there? Yeah, How so... Oh boy, this is another great story. Um, my so the last drink I had, I was. Uh, oh boy, it was October twenty sixth of two thousand eleven, and I, it was a few months after I graduated college. I remember this exactly. This is another photo you might be interested in. If I were to show you a photo from that night, it would be me in this sexy nurse costume, like with my finger on my lip, giving a sexy look. With like the sh- the skirt was too short and the cleavage was too much, and. You know, and I vouch. I like this. Sexy (laughs) fill in the blank. Exactly, exactly. So I had vowed that that night um, I was just going to have one drink and that was it. And so at midnight I had one drink and that one drink was uh, mainly vodka in a giant like glass that you drink soda out of or something and like a little bit of juice and then I decided even though I knew I couldn't mix weed and alcohol that's exactly what I was going to do what a great idea because it was at my Halloween party um and you know go figure I had found people that drank like me so there were about you know 12 bottles in the kitchen and like 12 of us and um all I remember is waking up the next morning, uh, somehow there was blue paint all over my nurse's costume, there were chicken nuggets on the terrace, the floor looked like a stampede, I had run the through it, you know. Chicken nuggets, those are I'm telling you, right? It's, so, it's part of everyone's rock bottom story is the chicken nuggets, right? <laughs> you have to title something chicken nuggets on the terrace. <laughs> yeah. You can title this episode oh, maybe, Chicken Nuggets okay, on the Terrace. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, it was bad. My Blackberry, I had a blackberry at the time just to give you a, just to date myself just to date it appropriately. <laughs> um, and it was like in a puddle of vodka and I turned over to my you know my 
now ex-boyfriend, ex, you know, boyfriend at the time. And, and I went to throw up and I came back and he just looked at me and he said, you know, uh, don't worry about doing this to me because I know that you're not going to, you've done plenty of stuff to me because you're drinking, but like how much longer are you going to do this to yourself? Wow. And uh, I don't know where this thought, actually, I do kind of know where this thought came from. Um, I, re, I emailed my therapist and I emailed her, do you know of any meetings that people under the age of 50 go to? <laughs> because <laughs> Your impression I, was uh, is going to be. Right. I mean, I think that's a lot of people's, you know, perception of the AA yeah. is, is, you know, old the old bastards, yeah. in, mm-hmm. in a basement. And you'll find those if you want, but that's not oh. all. You know what I mean? And uh and so, and I, I realized that, you know, a few months before, before I had sent that email, I had read Carolyn Knapp's Drinking yes. a Love Story, and I was underlining, like, all these yep. sections, like, yeah, that's me, that's me, but, like, the AA part didn't register for some yeah. reason, you know, mm-hmm. I was just reading it, and I kind of skimmed it, and it must have just kind of been a seed that was planted, just waiting mm-hmm. for slight, waiting for the right moment, and so I went to my first meeting. Now, this is interesting. I was 22. I went to my first meeting. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people who, like, went to the meeting, said, fuck this, left, like, they heard people complaining, they were like, this is miserable, or they just didn't want to be there, or I went there, I was thrilled, because I could not wait to find help stopping drinking. I was done. Like, I was done. I was like, oh, really? There's an answer? Perfect. I, you know, I took to the program, like I took to my school learning, which was give me homework, I'm going to get it done early, give wow. me step work, let's mm-hmm. do it, 90 meetings in 90 days, you got it, get three numbers, <laughs> got it, all them. I was like probably one of the most enthusiastic motherfuckers to walk through the door. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's awesome. That's rare, I, yeah, but it's so yeah. easy. Like, if you, you never hear it. I know. Yeah. But if you could tell people who just get there, it's like, that's exactly how you should do it because that's ultimately how you're going to do it or mm-hmm. you can go back out and beat yourself up until you get to that point, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so here's the, here's the other really interesting thing is that I actually, as this is very ironic, as eager as I was, I had such a problem with sponsors in the beginning because I was still getting panic attacks. I still had insomnia. And as I'm sure you know, there are some subgroups of the program who don't believe in medication. Mm -hmm. And even if it's prescribed, now you can take a look at any literature in AA and it will say, you know, we encourage you to get, you know, treatment from doctors. We're not doctors here. No one has the right to say what you should and shouldn't be taking for your own, you see a health professional and that's your business. Now there are some people who don't, you know, and, and it, I, I literally went through three sponsors and did steps one through four, three times in the first six months. I was so close to just saying, you know, I don't understand this because I want this so bad and I'm not drinking and I'm doing the step work. And, you know, I feel like I'm being pushed out because, now, in uh, years later, I look back and I, I understand, you know, all right, if you abused Ambien, you know, and it, it could be hard for you to say, okay, you can take Ambien, but I can't. I get that, or Clonopin, or whatever it was. They had to do what they had to do to take care of themselves. Um, but at the time, it was really hard for me, and this is kind of where both of my recovery processes, you know, really kind of, you know, I don't want to say hit a wall, but it was it was tough. It was tough, and and I had this this former professor of mine from college who I later found out was also in the program. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for him telling me like, 
you know, fuck those people. Like, don't, I can't believe this is happening to you. Like, you're doing everything right. Like, yeah. you know, you keep doing it. You're, you find someone that understands that, like, it's none of their business. And, like, you're not abusing these things. You're, you never abused pills. Like, that was not part of your story. You're taking something as prescribed, and that's it. And fortunately, I finally did, um, find find a sponsor who who took me through the 12 steps and the interesting thing was she and I butted heads uh almost as often as I butted heads with that first CBT mm -hmm. therapist who was like you know calling me on my shit and telling me things I didn't want to hear but she changed my life so dramatically and you know I made it through those 12 steps and um you know I found that the, the, the desire to drink was removed from doing that. And I found that I was freed of a lot of the resentments and the past traumas that I was still carrying around with me. And, you know, it's a process, you know, it's a process that took more than a year. I did the steps again, two years, three years. But, you know, I would say that that was really the final piece of the puzzle for me because it was then that I got sober. And I'm like, after the second year, I'm like, oh my God, wait, who am I? Like, what do I like to do? Like what, cause you know, after a certain point, it stops becoming just about saving your ass and being sober. Then you got to go like back into the stream of life and figure out like who you are and like make the life for yourself. And, uh, and so that was really when I started to become the person, you know, that I am today. But I'll say, you know, when I was still really suffering, when I was in the throes of everything, I used to just wish that I could be transported into a different body, into a different life. Like, and, and I always used to think maybe I need to go somewhere to do that or whatever. But you know what? It's like, I still live in lower Manhattan and my life, my inner life, my brain, my, the people in my life, my job, everything is different. And I, I'm in the same exact place physically. Yeah. You know? yeah. So when did you decide to write the book? When did that all happen? That started, I, it actually started as an independent study my last year of college with this same professor, actually, who I later found out was in the program, and uh, I knew he did independent studies. Now, uh, <laughs> initially, I posed it to him as a book of poetry because he was a, a poetry and Spanish translations teacher. And, uh, you know, what ended up happening was I was like, I really want to write the story of what happened to me on that day. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know... I, so I wrote it as a, and we did it as an independent study and the next semester I was like you know what I want to write about what happened to me after too and he was like okay and and so we did it together even though it was not in fact a book of translations or poetry <laughs> and um, for my senior work project I wrote a series of essays you know about life after 9-11 and uh, I was also interning at the time at uh, a publishing house and, you know, I said to myself, you know what, I, I really think this is a story that people need to know because in the last 10 years, and this is now, this was now coming up on the 10 year anniversary, I haven't heard anything about child survivors at all, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and, um, you know, so I wrote something for, for a paper and then a, a new, a, a producer from the CBC uh, named Anna Maria Tremonti, she found me and, and she flew from Canada to here to do a radio documentary on me. And she said, you know, I can't believe it. It was almost like you guys were invisible. And I mm. thought, this couldn't only be me, right? Mm. Like, what about my classmates? So I started reaching out to my classmates 
and and hearing my story and their stories, you know, like I, I reacted, I overreacted to things. It freaked people out. I wanted to be by myself. I cut myself, you know, I, I, my, it was like when I tried to sleep, it was like a nightmare, like a waking nightmare. I mean, all these things that could have been pulled from my story, I heard it in so many different people, you know, and, and, and I said, you know what, this is, this is, these are 9-11 stories that have not been told. And I, I wrote that story for Salon, um, actually. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was when I got to work on the book and, uh, it's, it's taken, it it took four years and I'll tell you why it took four years. Um, because, uh, several different agents, um, you know, wanted it to be something it, it wasn't, um, or, you know, mm-hmm. and then, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to find a, a wonderful agent who really believed in the project and who believed in telling the story of my life, you know, beyond just nine eleven, beyond just drinking. She was like, I want to hear more about your grandmother. You know, my grandmother was the love of my life. And, and as her health started to deteriorate over years, you know, there was another pattern that my drinking, you know, got worse. And, um, she was really the saving grace in my life. You know, every time I thought about killing myself, I said, not while grandma's alive, you know, that was some, sometimes, and she pulled that out of my story. And, um, the biggest hurdle that I faced between agents. And then when my agent finally sent it to publishers was nine 11 books don't sell period. Like we love the writing. She sounds like a great girl, like, but I just don't think it's marketable. And that was what we kept getting. And I kept saying to myself, I only need one yes. I only need one yes. And by now I was so determined because I, you know, you have to also understand I was doing the research. Like right when I heard PTSD from this DBT therapist, I threw, I'm a journalist, so I threw myself into every book I could get my hands on, you know, started looking at different kinds of trauma from natural disasters, from physical abuse, medical trauma, you know, all to gun violence. I mean, there's one out of every two kids in this country will experience trauma in their lifetime. And so I thought, you know, I need to raise awareness for this because I just Mm -hmm. interviewed 16 kids who lived for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what this is about for me, you know, and that's why I was so like, you know, listen, you don't become a journalist to get rich and you certainly don't write a book these days to make money. And, you know, (laughs) and and it was about for me, I was like, I just want someone to publish this book because I, I, you know, I've made a career out of trying to help people through writing, through social good writing and writing about social issues. And that's what my book is, too. You know, it's it's how can I use because what good is all this horrible stuff that I went through? if I can't use it to help people that's really how I look at it otherwise it's just a waste and if I had read something like my book when I was a teenager I don't even know how different my life would have been just to know that there was someone out there and and connecting dots that don't quite make like like at the time that I'm meeting guys online and going off and drinking in in their cars and having sex that didn't do anything for me but I was just craving this closeness with another human being you know I would have never made the connection to trauma but you know then you go over time and you learn huh you know like Sometimes we act out our story with trauma over and over again, like, and my body was telling the story of how I was out of control and how I at the same time surrendered control over to alcohol and, you know, probably part of me hoped something bad would happen to me because I was so, you know, I was in such a bad place and, um, you know, but, yeah. Exactly it though, right? It's like, it's, we're all in the throes of, 
you know, that addiction and those those other co-occurring disorders we might have, whether it's PTSD, depression, anxiety, combination of all those things or, or right. something else. Um, you know, and Jeff says it this way a lot. What, how do you say you're trying to make it, make yourself, be, make your voices in your head stop? Basically, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, Just right. Sort the of committee in your head. The committee in your head, right? Yeah. Just mm-hmm. um, because one way or another, whether it's it's uh, literally or even consciously, you're sort of you're, you're you're dragging yourself through hell, right? And you just want to be done, yeah. one way or another. You just want to be quiet for a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, and why does why does anyone drink who doesn't have a problem? Because it's fun. Because it makes you feel lighter and looser and warmer. And you know, that's of course that's like why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't everyone do that? You know what I mean? But but you know, there comes a point where you know, um, I heard this I heard this guy in a meeting recently say, you know, the difference between me and other people is that I want more drinks after I've had five than I did when I had one. Oh, and yeah, and totally. that makes and I just hearing him put it like that, like something just changes for me after yeah. that first drink. Like I think I want more and more and more of the feeling good because yeah. that, there was so much mental chatter that I couldn't turn off. And I was like, oh, okay, great, you know. Yeah. And I would go in knowing you can't have more than three, but all bets are off if you're yeah. an alcohol if you have an alcohol yeah. addicted mind and you have three. You don't know. You don't know what's gonna happen. So. Yeah. Who, who's the who's the publisher that finally yeah. was brave enough to put this out? Oh yes, yeah. Skyhorse Skyhorse Publishing. Skyhorse um, Publishing. Yes, and it was uh, my editor. Uh, his name is Mike Lewis, and and he personally said, you know, I I want this book, and um, I'm so grateful to them. I really am, and um, you know, I all it took was one yes. And I know this is such a cheesy reference to make, but as I was going through years of just getting so much rejection on this book, um, I just kept saying to myself, like, Mitch Album only got one yes on Tuesdays with Maury. And it became <laughs> the best-selling memoir of all time. And it's so hard. Like, it's so hard when you keep getting rejected, like, hundreds of times to keep going yeah. and not just yeah. light a candle for what might have been. Yeah. But there was this other um, fantastic, she's a children's book writer. Her name Amy, Amy Rosenberg and I met her uh, volunteering at this organization called Pajama Program mm. and uh, it's for children who um, you know are homeless or in group homes or, or shelters who uh, you know the organization gives them books and pajamas just to give them some comfort you know of a, of a good night like any other normal child and, and they have a reading center in New York and you go in and you read with them for an hour and the kids are told you know these people are here because they want to be because they want to spend time with you. And the hope is that these children and many of them come from trauma, have the memory, you know, of, of the time where someone was thinking of them and spent time with them and know that that's, that's out there and that's possible. So anyway, so I met her volunteering at this program and she and I became friends and she's like, you just need to find one editor who has balls. That's it. You just yeah. need mm-hmm. one who has balls. And I remember when, when we finally got a yes, I called her and I'm like, Skyhorse Publishing has balls. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Skyhorse Publishing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And good for you. You know, and and that's something I, I, you know, I find myself saying over and over, just even to, you know, an individual telling their story in whatever way they may be, whether it's, you know, through a a tweet or a blog post or on Facebook or something even, is that, you know, everyone's story is going to help someone. You just don't know who, how, or when. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, you know, as I'm just thinking about this, it's like there are, are probably many other 
children, um, you keep mentioning the, 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 those that you interviewed, but I mean, that are coming of age right about now and that this, like specifically that this will resonate with, um, I would have to think, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, there has to be a lot more out there that don't know what they're going through. Yeah. Yeah. Is, Absolutely. Is what you're getting yeah. at, right? But you Absolutely, um, yes. Like that mm-hmm. event, but, but trauma in general is interesting. My, my sponsor was, you know, lived in St. Louis, but was horribly traumatized by 9-11. Oh, I really? bet there are kids all over yeah. the place that just, you know, yeah. who knows? Well, it was probably, mm-hmm. yeah, terrifying to children, Terrifying, right? yeah, just, you know, course, whatever. And then just trauma, testament. you're right, just just the society we live in, you just don't know what that is. If one out of two children is going to be experience some sort of, you know, see something like, yeah, it just sticks with them yeah. and that becomes the thing. And you probably have no idea how great uh, that is. And I have to ask, is the picture of you as a child on the cover, is that you at 12 or young? Oh, man, yeah. now you're blowing up my spot. Um, I'm not actually 12 in that picture. Okay, I'm, um, I'm around that age. No, no, no. It's okay. I'm, I'm not far from 12. But, uh, but the, yeah. you know, the interesting Just thing is it's, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a baby face. I've been blessed. I, I use moisturizer every day. No, it, it's, it's, I think what the thinking was was this juxtaposition to okay. who I was before yeah. 9-11 and now who I am after. And it's sort of that recovery narrative that you – you you get right like what it was like what happened and what it's like now and i think that that's kind of what the cover gives you absolutely and i would start, that was my intent wasn't to blow up, blow up your spot at all. <laughs> what, what i'm what i what, what got me thinking as i'm sitting here looking at is is i mean is the i have a six-year-old daughter is what it has me thinking mm-hmm. and just thinking about she would have been you know sick if she was six then she'd be turning 21 now and i have to think you know, she would need this. She would need to hear what she's going through, and uh, I just think it's a phenomenal thing. I, I just, um, it's it's uh, you know incredibly great. I can't, and I'm so, I can't wait. And that you've um, yeah. you, you've done the work and you've come through it, and you're and you're there to you know share. No, it. I know. I Congratulations. Think it's yeah. Thank um, you. And your other yeah. writing, apart from the book, um, specifically that which deals with drinking and, and recovery, um, is great as well. I encourage everybody to check it out i mean you, Thank you, you had a piece on all your wasted new year's eves yeah that's right salon that i was reading today and you said something about um the effort to convince ourselves we're young and carefree and mm-hmm. uh and uh, it just it really resonated with me i've been at those parties i've had those new year's eves yeah. and uh it's you're, really you're trying really hard exactly yeah yeah fine fine stuff yeah and i think those links are on your site right helena h-e-l-a-i-n-a hovitz h-o-v-i-t-z dot com yeah Uh, yeah all that that writing Mm -hmm. as well i think um yeah and uh i wanted to give a shout out because in a a call we had uh, was it weeks ago a month ago um we we just talked uh um and uh you'd mentioned that that sarah heppola had suggested us and I wanted to thank on, yes. on, on record Sarah for, for pointing you in our direction and I'm yes. so glad she did. And yeah, uh, Sarah was my, uh, was my editor on both of the salon pieces that I did. Oh, um, wow. the piece about nine 11 and the piece about all my wasted new years. And, uh, I actually did not know that Sarah was, you know, one of us, at, 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 during any of that, which is That's very amazing, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she's fantastic. I mean, to this day, she's, she's one of the best editors I've ever had. She really brought life to my writing. And I think 
Um, you know, and so I was so excited to, to get my hands on her book as well. And, um, you know, yeah, she, she pointed me to you guys and, um, I'm really glad she did too. Um, and I also, uh, know that you guys are friends with, um, we're yeah. friends with lots of people. So we, we, lose, <laughs> we lose track of them all. Um, but, uh, this is exactly what happened last podcast. Who's on next week? I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> no, because I really, I want to give her a shout out. And this is the thing we communicate so much um on twitter and through facebook oh, i know who you're talking sobriety about the collective. sobriety collective sobriety laura, <laughs> laura silverman yes it's, it's crazy that now i just like in my mind i just see her little icon and, and sobriety collective and i think yes. like w- once i've seen her laura yes and and i know that you guys are friendly too and she's always yes. you know giving shout outs and i try to give her shout outs and um yes. i actually yes. think when she was on your show i i heard that i listened to her podcast with you guys and that was right. maybe a year ago i don't i don't know but um and i thought it was really cool because you know again like there there comes a point where you know yes you're still in recovery but you know i think one of the first female aas wrote wrote in this book um uh, i don't remember the name of the book but that you know there gets to a certain point where like the meetings and the calls and everything like and the fellowship like they're important but like they're not your whole life and when you start to need that less that means that like yeah you're getting you're better like go have a life like you know there's this kind of mentality in the rooms that's like oh really you're fine Hmm." and it's like well yeah i got here to get better and you know i think i've been around (laughs) i've been around long enough to know that um you know stopping going to meetings not having a sponsor not staying connected with my sober friends is a horrible idea but i go you know maybe once a week and i or i don't go more than 10 days you know i have a sponsor who um is a flight attendant so like there could be a week that i don't talk Mm -hmm. to her and she knows that like I'm, I mean, I'm in good shape. And if there are times that I'm particularly stressed and I think I could use another meeting, I go. But, you know, I think everyone has to figure out what works for them after a certain amount of time. You know, I'm approaching five years and, and, you know, I know what works for me. And some people swear by, you know, still going to, you know, five meetings a week and, you know, 20 years in. And if that's what you need, that's amazing. Uh, It takes tremendous discipline to do what works for you. You know, for me, like, once a week, I'm like, I'm in good shape. You know, I'm usually not actually thinking about drinking unless I'm in a meeting, which is fine, you know, but I need, I, I, I also don't believe that you take something from a community and leave, you know, I mean, I believe that this is, you know, um, this is these, this group changed my life and the group is there because people show up to meetings and I need to be one of those people that has gotten better and still shows up to meetings. Maybe I can help someone, but the meeting doesn't exist unless there's people there, you know, and, and people in the rooms have helped me so much that, you know, I believe it's really important to remember where you came from and you never know who you can help. You know what I mean? And so, um, I don't think that I'll ever stop. I mean, I know it's never say never, but for me, um, you know, I, I still hear new things that are helpful and I still give my number to people. And I think it's, it's really a community and, and I've never been anywhere else on earth where, you know, I could sit on a stool and tell my story and, and a 60 year old, you know, ex 
you know, heroin addict will say, I related so much to yeah. you. Yeah. Who's this, you know, young white girl drinking in college, you know, and it's just because because we all understand each other because we all relate to each other, no matter where we come from in life, like this disease, which I do believe is a disease, you know, it, it's very similar in all of us. It takes different right. shapes, but there's something about going somewhere where people understand you and relate to you. And also not for nothing, but where everyone is like, usually really respectful of each other even if there are differences and we can all kind of get along and like follow certain principles when we're by nature people who can tend to be a little bit you know uh prickly and you know I think that that's amazing and you know the last thing I want to say I know we've been talking for a while is that you know as a journalist um it's 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 impossible for me not to notice all this writing that's that's being done lately and all this reporting about you know AA is such a dated program. It was created in, you know, the 1930s. And now we know all this stuff. We have more research. And I, and, you know, I think, look, all I can say is, is I'll never forget reading Living Sober when I was 22 years old. And I had two days and thinking, this is where I belong. These people understand me. This could have been written about me. It was written however many years ago and it worked for me. And that's all I can say, you know, and I'm a very practical person. I've done a ton of research. I think, you know, there really is magic in the program. That's all I'm going to say is, is, you know, it, it still works for, for, yeah. for whoever it works for 80 for years. It works for, exactly. So, I think it's, you know? it's, it's not a case of, um, it doesn't have to be a sort of a binary equation. Either you do or you don't. Um, right. But it's it's always, you know, it's always there. And uh, it's if if uh, you know if you have if you have a problem, it's certainly worth sitting down. I found that out very very late, um, but I never um, you know I never disparaged uh, the program. The, I certainly the don't tenets now, of it, having been there, um, they're but, timeless. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, it may some of it seems kind of antiquated, but it's. The, the tenets of the program are, yeah. are kind of universal. And now that I have a greater understanding of, of this whole, you know, sobriety and recovery spectrum or continuum or whatever it is, um, you know, I s- certainly uh, understand um, the value um, that uh, AA has provided um, to many. And, you know. Cool. Yeah. So. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. So, yeah, that was like. Incredible. September 6th is the day that this comes out yes but of course <laughs> what kind of author would I be if I didn't mention that it's available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble already um, so. <laughs> there you go the link will be in the show notes and uh, yeah thanks, thanks again. So and uh, we'll have to figure out uh, if we're ever in the same neck of the woods we'll all hook up and have a what's what's my new favorite drink? Uh, La Croix. What's it called? La Croix. La Croix. La Croix. What do people Coconut. call it here? Um. Anyway, yes. Oh, uh, I do uh, want to say one more thing on the record, if you'll let me, if you're sure. still recording, is that um, you know, for the sake of talking to you guys, you know, it, the tradition of AA is that you know you respect anonymity, and so you know I have no problem breaking my own anonymity, mm. you know, here on the show, but. In my book, I, I don't mention AA at all because okay. you know it's it's kind of a strong part of the traditions because you know I can I can break my own, but I I do now while I've changed everyone's names and I've you know I haven't used anyone's real name and I haven't used any last names, I still sort of feel like you know if I'm in a certain community and there are certain 
principles, you know. And and I think it's it's totally up to everyone individually. Mm. Um, but just you know, since I'm only talking about myself, um, I'm mm. very open about my recovery. Like I'll go. I'm, I also do food writing, and I'll go to restaurants and like you know, if I say I'm not drinking and the waiter right. pushes it on me, I'm like, you don't want me to drink because I'm an alcoholic, and that would be a relapse. <laughs> and like I'm right. very open about it, you know. But um, anyway, so I just thought that that was worth mentioning that I am not in the business of outing anyone but myself. So yeah. no, I think, um, that's very much, you know, the sort of foundational element of, of sort of what we do um, here on the pod is, I don't know, I think we've probably had the conversation of, a handful of times throughout the couple of years. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it's an individual thing. And I don't think anybody comes on here. And uh, I don't know if, well, I guess we've had a couple people that, that remain last initial only. No one knows but my last anyway, name. yeah, nobody knows Jeff. Mm-hmm. Not Jeff's even last Jeff. Last Jeff's not even his real first name. Um, (laughs) So, all right. Well, Helena, terrific talking to you. Thank Um, you. You too. All right. Have a good night. You uh, too. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm so excited. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Another clean and sober intervention.